back again to Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. This is probably going to be podcast number 285, I think, 285, and it's, uh, no, no, that's not right. This is going to be podcast 286, and uh, this will probably air on Friday. That would be, oops, what happened? <laughs> Today's Tuesday, right? Yes. No, this podcast will probably air on Thursday, uh, March 21st, 2013. And as you're already hearing, we have some sound issues going on. And the reason why is because with me on Skype is my sometime co-host and full-time daughter, Kai Vick. Kai. Hello. Yeah, I, uh, I'm trying to podcast, but I am currently hiking the Appalachian Trail, and, uh, it, well, not currently. Currently, I'm sitting in a motel room in Georgia, but I am actively hiking the Appalachian Trail, and so I get what I get, and I don't get a whole lot more. I don't have room in my pack for fancy recording equipment. But because of the situation, you're having to do this on speakerphone, and that may be causing the echo that I'm hearing, so we may have to switch uh, off of speaker. Yeah. But we'll give, it a, we'll give it a try for a minute. Okay. So then, um, just to kind of give you an update of what's going on here around the old uh, bad Quaker site. Yeah, I, I think the echo's too much. I think we're going to okay. have to switch the phone. That's fine. I'm getting some choppiness on your end, too, so maybe switching an off-speaker might help that. Okay. So let me give that a try. Hold on. Okay. Now, what did I say? Did I say this was Still on speaker. podcast 285? No, I'm not on speaker. Okay. Now you're not on speaker. Okay. Okay. And I lost know. the act. That's great. But it's still choppy on my end. Yeah. And we still have a delay between us. So we need to be sure and not uh, walk on each other's uh, words. Okay. I will do my best. So I think I said this was going to be podcast 285. And I think it's actually going to be podcast 286. And it should be a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And it should be for Thursday, March twenty first. Okay. So uh, whatever I said prior to that is superseded by what I just said. Awesome. Um, Do we want to do a reintroduction? No, we can just run with it. They can hear the the uh, you know the raw thing. So uh, I just had, I just today uh, did a recording with um, a professor of philosophy from Colorado State University, Boulder. Um, His name's Michael Humer, and he just wrote uh, a book. He wrote it a while back, but it just uh, got released in January. 
um, called The Problem with Political Authority, an Examination of the Right to Coerce and the Duty to Obey. And I, uh, uh, I was pretty impressed with the guy. You know, one of the things about this movement that we're in, or this, uh, you know, um, not movement, this... The mission uh, that we're on? That, yes. <laughs> um, people pop up constantly from all over the place that have been on the same journey as the rest of us, but, uh, but we're not all aware of each other, even though we're all going on the same path. So in the case with um, Michael Humer, I mentioned Hans Hermann Hoppe to him, and he hadn't heard of Hans Hermann Hoppe. And, and so it's like, um, here, here is this one professor in his specialty that has not heard of this other professor who is literally the cutting edge of his specialty. It, it's really strange. Uh, Michael Humer is also going to be one of the speakers at, the, uh, at Porkfest when, when we get up there. I'm so jealous you guys are going to get to Porkfest. I'm like, I'm trying my hardest to think of a way to get to Porkfest, and I just, it, I don't think I'm going to be able to. Yeah. Well, you're going to be walking somewhere in Appalachia, so you'll be with us in spirit. <laughs> I, I mean, I will be there, but I will be there months after everyone is there. Because, I mean, the Appalachian Trail runs, like, right by the campground. Wow. Yeah. So how's the, so you started out in Georgia. Georgia, yeah, and, top of Springer Mountain. And you're almost to North Carolina? Uh, yeah, I think I'm like seven or eight miles outside the North Carolina border. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to hike that tomorrow. Uh, I might. I might push through and get into North Carolina tomorrow, or I might be lazy. I don't know. That's tomorrow. So, so what's it been so far? What's it been like so far uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail? Um, hard. It's been a lot of walking up mountains and, uh, and then walking down mountains and being very sad because it's easy to go downhill, but you know that if you go downhill, that means you have to come back uphill. <laughs> um, and also I realized about three days into it that I was radically unprepared. Um, Even though you did tons and tons of research and everything. Yeah, I was radically unprepared. I didn't realize, because I've spent some time in Georgia um, and a lot of time in North Carolina and South Carolina, and uh, I didn't realize that it was going to be this cold. Because well, you're, you're never, up in the mountains. mountains. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the mountains make a huge difference. Um, I, there was a point where we were hiking, and it was like 18 degrees outside, and the wind was really intense, and... I didn't have winter gear. Like I had chilly weather gear. I had spring gear, but I didn't have winter gear. And uh, yeah, it, it was pretty intense. Um, it was definitely the first several, the first couple weeks were definitely a, a trial by fire. Um, and I think I forget what the exact numbers are, but I think it's something like a third of the people drop out in the first week. And like half drop out by uh, Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, and then like all told, I think less than ten percent make it all the way to the end. So I'm I'm really good odds now that I made it this far. Um, I'm I'm going super slow, and I'm I've been passed by a lot of people. <laughs> but well, it's not a race. No, it's not a race. You know, and that I mean. 
you know, the mountain in Maine will be there. It's not going to go anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> so I have time. You know, and my thought process is I'd rather go slow now and not get injured than try to rush and get injured. And then, you know, oh, you have to sit up in town for two weeks with shin splints or something. You know, that's, that's taking time away way more than just walking slowly would. So are you able to keep up at all on anything that's happening in the world, or are you pretty much isolated from all news and happenings and everything? I have absolutely no idea what's going on in the world right now at all. It's kind of refreshing, actually. About, about two or three times a week, I can get on Facebook, um, but a lot of times I don't because I don't realize that I can get on Facebook because I don't realize I have signal because my phone is turned off and packed away in my backpack. <laughs> so... Um, but I've been able to post a couple pictures up on Facebook of, uh, of the mountains and stuff like that. But I've, I've kind of stopped taking pictures of the mountains because I was flipping through my phone and I realized that I couldn't identify which mountains were which, like I didn't know which ones I took at what time. And so I figured if I can't tell, then there's really no point in it, you know? So I've been focusing more on taking kind of life pictures, you know, pictures of camp and pictures of other through hikers and, you know, around the shelter type pictures instead. A lot of people make that mistake when they, like if they go for the first time to Washington DC or Disney world or, you know, Mount Rushmore or whatever, they take a whole bunch of pictures of stuff that's always going to be there and they fail to take pictures of the people they were with when they were there. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's the stuff that's important. Like, the the views and stuff uh, they're gorgeous they're absolutely amazingly gorgeous but they're not there's no way that I with a camera could capture how pretty they are you know I can't I can't do it so you know you just you that's pretty and then you keep walking you know so it's a so, lot harder than you really expected though it's a lot harder than I expected it to be um, I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself. I've gotten, when I started out, there was no pace at all that I could go. I could not go slow enough up a mountain to not lose my breath. <laughs> like it did not matter how slow I went about every 10 feet. I had to stop and catch my breath. And now I can walk pretty much without stopping up most of the hills that I've encountered in the last week or so um, without stopping. I mean, I'm going very, very slowly, but I'm not stopping, you know. And so it's a continual improvement. So, so, since, you haven't, that. so since you haven't been able to keep up on all the news and everything, uh, you didn't hear about um, the island of Guam tipping over because there was too many people on it, just like that one congressman <laughs> warned about, right? You didn't hear about that, right? Oh, man. They were supposed to land on both sides evenly so the island stayed flat. If you put all the troops on one side, the island's just going to tip over. <laughs> and for I anybody heard, I, heard that, I heard that on the inner tubes. Yeah. For anybody that doesn't know the reference, there was a congressman who actually seriously asked that question, thinking that it was possible that the island of Guam could tip over if they got too many people on it. And so that's why we're making fun of that. But uh, no, the big, I guess the probably the biggest news that's happened here recently was um, the, the nation of Cyprus 
the the president of the nation of Cyprus went to his first um, European Union meeting, and he got there, and they basically told him, uh, you know, um, guess what? The people on Cyprus uh, have been saving too much money. Uh, they save more than the average person in the European Union. So what we want you to do is, uh, it, it was Friday when they were having this meeting, they, they told the president of Cyprus, what you need to do is close down all your banks, don't have any banks open over the weekend, and Monday morning when you open the banks, um, lift 6% out of everyone's accounts. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Just a straight across um, the board, everybody who has money in a bank loses 6%. Boom, right now. Do, do these people not learn? I mean, do, hello, Greece. Like, did you not see what happened? Did you not see what happened in Egypt? Did you not see what happened in Greece? Do you not understand what is going to happen if you continue to do this? Like, this is not difficult. You can't just take people's money. You can't take all of the people in an entire country. You can't take 6% of their money. You, there will not be that country anymore. Like, this, I don't understand how these people don't understand this. Like, and I, well, I do. I do actually understand it because they think they're God. Yeah. Well, you know, they, uh, in a sense, they are. I mean, that's all based on, on who the believer is. And as long mm -hmm. as there's believers, there's, there's the deity right there. Yeah. Taking the, you know, whether, whether it's 6% of your bank account or whether it's, you know, your children into the fires of Baal or whether it's, uh, you know, the king's daughter into the volcano. I mean, it's all the same, really. It is. It's all the same. You know, and as dutiful followers of the great religion of statism, it's your duty to give a tithe. Yeah, pretty much. That's that's how it works. And and if, you know, that gets me. Like, if, if you don't understand why that's wrong, if you... If you can't understand why someone forcibly taking your money from you is wrong, I, I don't, you're so far gone that I don't even know how to help you, you know? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm I mean, confused that's all the time. fundamentally wrong. Like, a baby knows that you can't do that. You don't have to teach that to a baby. They know, you don't have to teach that to a dog. They know that. How is it that human beings have been so brainwashed by the state that they don't understand that concept? You know, could you go up to a lion and say, hey, Mr. Lion, I know you just hunted down that gazelle, but give me 6%. Like, that's not going to work. Lions are, uh, are remarkably bad negotiators. <laughs> have you tried to negotiate with a lion? Uh, no, I, I, I'm taking that second hand. <laughs> You've learned from other people's mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. But yeah, so I, I'm okay. So what did what did the uh, what did the president of Cyprus uh, tell the European Union? I guess he was gonna do it. Um, I'm looking at a story now that kind of indicates that maybe. 
if I'm reading this right, um, the Parliament of Cyprus may have, uh, probably out of sheer fear of the of the residents of the island, may have stopped this. So I'm not sure that it actually took place or not. Uh, I know the announcement of it was causing bank runs. Everybody's running to the bank to try to yank out as much of their money as possible. Well, yeah. <laughs> I w- wouldn't you? <laughs> Which, I mean, in and of itself is a problem, because the way that banks work, they don't have your money. Right. No, they don't. That's fractional reserve banking. You put your money in a bank, and it's it's not there. They don't keep it. They they, they use it. They spend it. They loan it. They, that, that money doesn't exist anymore. And in right. fact, most of the, most of the time... In in today's world, there's no actual money involved. You get a direct deposit from your employer. That's it's just numbers being moved. There's no actual money involved in any of it. It's all pretend. Yeah, actually, the vast majority of money that's on books in banks or investments or in whatever doesn't actually exist in physical money. It's it's just notations on paper. And that's why we can have a debt in this country that's, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars. You, there's, there's not that much money physically. There's not that much money. But that money exists in, in ledgers and accountants' books and, and things like that. But you can't actually have that much money. That much money would be an enormous amount of money. Like, you couldn't haul that amount of money around, you know. Yeah, that's uh, one of the problems that people try to use as an excuse of why you have to have fiat money rather than gold, is they say, well, see, because you couldn't move all that gold around. But um, that's not really true. I had you know, the economist Bob Murphy, I had him on the podcast last year, mm-hmm. and uh, he explained that even if there was only one ounce of gold in existence, and even if it was all in one location... You could have, you could still have a complete gold standard, not based on fractional reserve, but based on a direct gold standard, just by dividing it up mathematically into smaller units. Right. You could still have a gold standard even if there was only one, even literally if there was only one molecule of gold in existence, you could still divide it up. Yeah. Well, and I mean, if you want to go the route of not having physical objects, but having uh, electronic money, you can do that too. You can have electronic money that's not fractional reserve banking. You know, that's what, how Bitcoins work. Bitcoins are, you can't get, I mean, you can't hold a Bitcoin. You can't give a Bitcoin to a teller at, you know, McDonald's. But at the same time, that money does exist. And when you move it somewhere, that money moves there. It's not imaginary. Yeah, and more and more businesses are actually taking Bitcoin, you know, you because you use it up with your phone, just like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's on your phone and you can just uh, do it like that. It's it's getting really, really convenient. I, I really need to get into it more. Um, they, uh, I think it's, oh my, I'll, I better look it up because I can't remember. I, I can't remember what the value now is, but it keeps going up. Well, does it keep going up or does money, money keep going down? I think it's actually a combination of both. We are having a lot more inflation with the dollar than what they're reporting, but a lot of it, too, is a matter of faith. 
there's more faith in the Bitcoin than there is in the dollar, so the Bitcoin continues to increase. It's almost 60 uh, Federal Reserve notes per Bitcoin now. Wow. Yeah, and it wasn't that long ago that uh, you know that we all got excited around the bad Quaker um, compound because we had been given uh, two different deposits. One of uh, I think it was one of two bitcoins and one of a half a bitcoin, and that was back when they were like eight dollars a bitcoin. Right. And we were really excited yeah. about that. Well, it it goes to show that. It doesn't matter what the alternative currency is. It is a good time to move funding into alternative currencies. Even things like copper right now. Copper is dirt cheap. I mean, comparatively to other precious metals, it's dirt cheap. But it's not going to stay that way. Like, five years ago, silver was dirt cheap. And now, silver is worth a decent chunk of money per ounce. So, you know, you have you have copper right now and you think, oh, well, copper's not worth investing. It's only worth, I, I don't know what copper's worth right now. But no, now is the time to invest in that. Like, get it now. Put your useless Federal Reserve notes into something that is actually going to build you wealth instead of diminishing wealth. Yeah, it's down around um, three dollars and forty cents. I think um, that might be per pound. I think it's per pound. Oh, but okay. um, yeah, but uh, and and it's dropped off slightly in the last thirty days. But um, that that literally means that this is the time to buy in because ultimately, you know, it's based on this measuring technique that we use using the Federal Reserve dollar. Eventually, the Federal Reserve dollar is going to continue to inflate and inflate and inflate. And so a, a temporary sump in a, in a market in metals is just an indication of a temporary sump. That's all it is. Yeah. You know, the, the dollar has continually devalued over the last hundred years, and it's going to continue to devalue as long as, uh, you know, as long as it's based on fiat and Federal Reserve and this whole system like this. And it's more than that, too. It's any state-based currency, because it doesn't matter what currency you look at throughout the history of humanity, as soon as a state takes over a currency, it begins to devalue that currency. It has to, because a state can't exist without stealing from people, and devaluing currency is one way, the most prominent way that they steal from their citizens. So... Any, like, uh, Rome had this issue. Rome would put out official state gold coins that weren't exactly gold coins. You know, they weren't pure. And the state would pocket that extra gold. And that's what they're continuing to do with inflation. That's how inflation works. Yeah, and it's actually kind of an oddity for the last hundred years with central banking, um, at least in the U.S., being in the hands of a, a you know what they call a private bank, which is actually a corporation in the Federal Reserve. But it's kind of been an oddity that the the ability to fleece the American public was sort of loaned out to a corporation for a while. Um, that, that's weird because most of the time the, the, the government itself wants the ability to do that. And they kind of farmed it out to their, uh, maybe their corporate owners for a hundred years there. It's a disturbing trend. Corporatism is, uh, it's relatively new and I don't know. It, it's a particular brand of evil that I, I can't predict. 
because it hasn't shown up before in history. You know, it, it's it's unpredictable. It's new. I don't know where they're going with it. I have kind of formulated an idea, and I don't know if this is maybe too foil hatish, but I've kind of come to the conclusion around 1910 or so, you know, the Greenbackers were a pretty powerful political organization in the late 1800s, and they really, really wanted um, all the money issuing to come from Congress. But people had within their memory, literally within their lifetime, they had watched both Lincoln's administration and the Confederacy at the same time uh, putting out greenback dollars backed, you know, uh, issued by Congress and backed by nothing. And they watched it destroy the economies in both the North and the South. And so having that in their memory in 1910, 1913, uh, when, the, when the Fed was being formulated and accepted, people literally remembered what greenbacker policies would do, and they were terrified of it. So you had these, um, there were these people called the Copperheads, and you had the, uh, the, the Silver people, and you had the Gold people, and you had the Mixed Standard people, and they were all struggling for power, and then this magic solution comes in. Well, why don't we just let this private corporation do it? They'll be fair and honest. Well, yes, because they're an outside party. You know, yeah, they're, they're neutral. They're not, they're not the government. They're, they're a neutral party. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I can't help but to think that that was just a scam in order to, um, to have the excuse, once the Federal Reserve fails, to have the excuse to go back to the greenbacker policy that the government really wanted to begin with. The only problem with that theory is that people don't live 100 years and they generally don't plan ahead that far. So... You know. Well, you know, but the the world is ruled by, um, you know, that one family that owns all the banks. So <laughs> they they do plan out a hundred years advance. <laughs> I, I, I thought the aliens took care of that. Oh yeah. Well, th- those um, they're the rulers of the aliens. They're the king of the lizard people. If you if you what? bought the sunglasses, you would know this. <laughs> But what about the shadow people? How do they figure into it? Oh, come on now. That's just being ridiculous. <laughs> That's taking conspiracies too far. Well, I look like a tinfoil nut job. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you believe in Loch Ness Monster, but you're going to draw the line at Bigfoot. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's pr- we have the pictures are better of Nessie. <laughs> the people in Bigfoot, it's clearly a person dressed up in an ape costume. Oh, now somebody's going to take all this stuff seriously, and they're going to think we're actually saying this when we're just messing around. <laughs> and it, it's, I think it's important to keep a sense of humor about the conspiracy theory issue, because there are... You know, there there are conspiracy theories that are terrible, and people are like, oh, no, that's a conspiracy theory. And then as it turns out, oh, no, actually, it's not. That's true. You know, that actually happened. Um, but then, you know, you can't, you can't use that as justification for insanity. 
<laughs> you know, there's a fine line. I mean, don't get me wrong. The state is capable of some evil, twisted, insane things. But not all evil and ins- insane, twisted things are because of the state. Sometimes they're just, you know, condensation coming out of planes. And and they're not always planned. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think people underestimate the power of stupidity. On that note, on that note, I probably should save this file. And uh, in case uh, Skype crashes on us completely, at least I'll have something to publish. So folks, stick with us. We'll throw in a commercial here. And uh, hopefully we'll be back in about 30 to 60 seconds. From June 17th through June 23rd of this year, the Free State Project will celebrate its 10th annual Porcupine Freedom Festival, Porkfest. My wife Cindy and I plan on attending, and Bad Quaker staff members Hannah and Matt are trying to raise enough money to attend, as they did last year. Considering fuel, campground fees, and Porkfest tickets, we estimate it will cost BadQuaker.com a little over $2,000 for Cindy and I to attend. For Matt and Hannah to attend, it will cost about $700 more. If you'd like to take part in sending the Bad Quaker crew to Porkfest 10, here's how you can do it. Go to badquaker.com. You can click on the Donate button on the right-hand side of the page. You can also give us bitcoins with our bitcoin number located right below the Donate button. Or you can use our Amazon button to shop at Amazon. If you'd like to support badquaker.com on a regular basis, you can use the link to our forum and become a supporting member for only $4 a month or just $25 a year. Thanks, folks. Okay, and thanks for sticking with us through the commercial. And uh, during the commercial break, uh, Kai and I were talking about the small pocket of gajillionaires that are uh, actually, you know, within our movement, within, uh, see, I said movement again, that that are part of the Liberty Mission. And, uh, you know, we've been really fortunate that there are people, um, whether we're talking about when when Ludwig von Mises had to literally escape Europe for his life. I mean, they were literally, the the Nazis wanted him dead. They had raided his his home in Austria. They chased him into Switzerland. He uh, literally uh, jumped in his car and took off across France to try to get to Spain. He barely got through Spain without incident. Well, not without incident. He almost lost his life. Eventually, he got you know to to where he could uh, I believe get on a boat in Portugal, if I remember the story, and made his way to the U.S. and he got here penniless. And there were people in the U.S. that were kind enough to um, to support Ludwig von Mises and keep him, even when the American universities refused to uh, to give him any kind of a salary that was livable. Um, there were people that you know supported the same cause that that we're working for that uh, that kept Mises going through those really really rough years. And then along comes you know Rothbard and all the great work that he was doing, and there were people uh, that understood what Rothbard was doing and supported him. And so we're really fortunate today that there's a pocket of people who have benefited from these, um, you know, from uh, Austrian economics and from 
the uh, the libertarian theories that have been worked on by these different people throughout the last hundred years. And there are a few of those people who literally hold up um, the pillars of this uh, of this whole uh, liberty thing, and uh, and it's really nice that they are out there that they're that they're contributing the way they are, and and now we can wave our hand and say we're here. <laughs> I would like uh, I would like uh, our Google overlords to know that I've been a faithful member of their community now for <laughs> the whole time and to smile favorably on me. Actually, the the guy from Google he's uh, he's doing the Seasteading Institute, isn't he? Uh, yeah, one of the Google founders um, is exactly like the kind of a person we're talking about. He has invested a lot of his own personal money into several different liberty-oriented um, uh, adventures like that. And you think of somebody like Doug Casey with the work he's doing in South America and setting up a haven down there. It's sort of like, um, it's sort of like the Free State Project, but in, um, in, a, different, uh, in a different category. Cause he's, and, and it's not just rich people. That's kind of the common myth, that there's only rich people that are moving down there to Doug Casey's uh, uh, thing that he's doing. But like Doug Casey himself said, there are... You know, they need gardeners, they need babysitters, they need school teachers, they need construction people. And, Do they uh, need homeless hippies? Probably. Because I can do homeless hippie, let me tell you. Well, once you have the experience of hiking the Appalachian Trail, then you can always try the Andes and make it down there on foot. Yeah, I don't, uh, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> oh, the Incas did it all the time. Yeah. Well, you know. Um, uh, speaking of, of rich people who are helping the liberty movement, um, the, I, I wanted to uh, to say like that that guy with the perpetual motion machine. <laughs> I, I almost called him Foster Grant. I, I do that so often. Uh, Foster, uh, not Foster Brooks, not Foster Grant. Foster uh, DuPont? No, Foster. Yeah. He's not a DuPont. He's one of those other super rich industrialist families. Oh, what? What is he? He. Not Colgate. Not Palm Olive. <laughs> <laughs> not Chiquita. No, I don't think I'd take his money. I mean, no, I hate to be rude. He wouldn't take his money. <laughs> Foster oh, almost had his name. What if he showed you his perpetual motion machine? You know, I would almost not even believe it then. Uh, the, that story is so hokey. I don't know how anybody believes uh, that. Yeah, well, I mean, he's rich. That's why people believe it. Yeah, I think that actually does have a lot to do with it. I think, you know, um, people always deep down inside, they think, well, if I'm nice to him, maybe he'll be nice to me. But, I mean, you have to draw a line somewhere. I've been complaining about, you know, uh, for a couple podcasts that Murray Rothbard made a horrible mistake by taking Coke money. And then right. I get to thinking about it later and I think, well, what would I do in that situation you know, it would be a horrible temptation to take that money. On the other hand, how would you have the strength to not take it? Right. You know? Right. 
But I mean, that's, that's, that is the temptation of being a free person. You know, it is horribly tempting not to be free. Slavery is so easy. You know, it really is. It is so easy to become indebted to somebody. It's so easy to rack up credit card debts instead of saving money for what you want. It's easy. It's the easy way out. But it's not right. You know, it's not the right, correct, moral way to live. And so if you're taking money from somebody for something that is against your moral principle, then you're indebted to them. You know? Yep. And, and, and so you are no longer a free person. And in a sense, and I, and I think this may have been part of the cause of the animosity between Rothbard and the Koch uh, money later, you know, in a sense, the person giving the money not only expects, but feels like there's an unwritten contract that you're going to do their bidding if they give you that money. And, right. and so, and I'm not saying that's bad. It's kind of an expectation when you give money to a cause you kind of expect them to do the things that you imagine that, that they'll do. That's why you gave them the money to begin with. Right. And e- even more so if it's a large quantity of money. Yeah, and, and that is why it's so very important to be aware of not only who you accept money from, but who you give money to. Yeah, it really is, because you can prevent that from the donor point of view you can prevent that uh, that shock value of finding out that you didn't actually buy that person's soul when you gave them that, you know. Uh, I, I'm thinking of one time, uh, I, there was a person who had some really angry criticism of me on, uh, on Bad Quaker, and he felt it necessary to make a $1 donation to badquaker.com so that he could send me uh, a, a scathing email with, um, with, you know, just spewing hate at me. And, and he felt justified in doing that because he sent me the $1 don't, or he sent the bad Quaker. It didn't go to me, but he sent the, uh, $1 to badquaker.com and it gave him the feeling that he was justified in, in attacking me. I, I always thought that was so strange, but I can kind of see where a person would think that way. Yeah, I can see where a person would think that way, too. Um, but it is very strange. It It's odd to me. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a capitalist. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. Um, I believe in an open market system. I think money is good. I think currency is good. I think uh, trade and volunteerism, all of those things are good. But... There is sort of a cult of money. You know, money does kind of bring power, and with power, you know, they say absolute power corrupts absolutely, and money is the absolute power. You know, when you have money, you have power, and even more so when that money is backed by the power of the state. So now you said you're a capitalist in that what you mean is you wear a top hat and walk around with bags of money, right? And a monocle. And, and a and cane. And you have a, a large white mustache? Yes. Well, yes. you are in Appalachia. <laughs> hey, now. Oh, boy. 
we'll get a bunch of uh, family members, a bunch of hillbilly family members mad at me, and I'm going to get shot at the next time I go to Kentucky. <laughs> I would like the people of Appalachia to know that I think that they are wonderful people and that I will continue to drink all of the sodas that they leave at the trailheads. They leave sodas at the trailheads. Yeah, it's called trail magic. It's super awesome. These people, they'll show up to the trail. Sometimes they've hiked the trail. Sometimes they've hiked part of the trail. Sometimes they haven't hiked any of it, and they just know that there are through hikers. They'll show up to the tra- to like where the trail intersects roads, and they'll just set up shop there with like cooler soda or beer or food or whatever, and they just give them to the hikers. Give them, not not sell. Not sell. Give. But now there are state agencies there making sure that they give this, right? There's, there's like uh, de- departments and so forth? Well, sure. Be, I mean, you know, charity doesn't exist without the state. <laughs> Again, for our new listeners, we're joking. <laughs> I'm sure they all have their proper permits. Of course, I expect that not to happen in New York because New York seems to be really vicious against people who like to give other people food. Hmm. There was a town in Texas. I can't remember if it was Dallas or Fort Worth or Austin, but one of those, uh, they started getting after the charities because the charities weren't licensed property or something, and they wouldn't let the charities go down and just give free food to homeless people who were you know, uh, needy and so forth. And yet, you, you know, liberals will scream that without government force, we don't have charity. Yeah, and there's government force stopping charity. I can't remember yeah. which Texas town that was. Somebody will probably email it to me. But, um, but I was surprised that that took place in Texas. You would expect it in some places, you know, but yeah. I, I wouldn't have expected it in Texas. Didn't they do that too in New York City? I think it was New York, and I think in some place in Florida they did it as well. It's a disturbing trend. It's been popping up more and more. There's There's been a, a pretty low-key but vicious attack on private charities. There was, uh, back in around 1900 to 1920... There was a very open attacks by government uh, officials on charities. They, they, you know, they concentrated their attacks on them, trying to break them up and so forth. They used a lot of racial stereotyping, especially with things like beer halls and things like that. A person thinks of a beer hall and they think of a bar, but within the German American culture around 1900, a beer hall was more like a social place. You had weddings there. You had, uh, you know, um, celebrated birthdays of your children there. You had, uh, the, the women would uh, get together in places, in, in beer halls, and they would have uh, sewing things where they would make blankets and quilts and junk like this. And there would be, um, they would have lists of people within the community that were unemployed or had lost a relative or had someone very ill in their family. And they would get together and work out charities. And, and, and all this stuff was run from the beer halls. And so uh, one of the major ways to kill the beer halls and make the people dependent upon uh, the government dole, the government handouts, uh, the uh, prohibition fit the, the bill perfectly to get rid of the beer halls. 
And so that was literally, that was one of the more important aspects of why they had to have prohibition was to kill the beer halls because of all the dirty Germans and their nasty charities. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it wasn't just Germans that they attacked that way. It was the Irish. It was because all of these, uh, uh, especially immigrant communities, would band together and help each other out, you know. And, and that community is dangerous to the state. You know, the state doesn't want you to have a community. The state doesn't want you to help each other. The state does not want that. The state wants you to come to them and have them give you bread, and you take it home, and you work for the state, and they take everything from you. That's, that is the goal of the state, and that, you can see that that's the goal of the state because that is how the state, what the state goes to at every single time that the state is allowed to go that far. And it really did have a lot to do with demonizing the immigrants, too. Uh, a lot of the support for that, for that type of activity. I mentioned the beer halls, but it was the same thing with the benevolent societies and the different things like that. Um, you know, the, um, uh, the, the non-immigrant Americans uh, were used horribly uh, through fear tactics and through, you know, uh, racial profiling and all kinds of things. And the Irish were demonized, the Germans were demonized, the Chinese were demonized, the Mexicans were demonized, the, the, uh, the Italians were demonized, the Poles were demonized. And each of these different groups, as they came into the United States and they set up different type of benevolent societies to support themselves, uh, the, the, uh, to the non-immigrants, um, the newspapers and so forth hyped this and made it sound terrifying that these people were getting together and and working together and supporting each other like that like that was some kind of threat to them you know um and and that's where a lot of the things like the anti-marijuana laws the anti-cocaine laws the anti-hashish laws the anti-opium laws they're uh, they're all based on some type of fear tactics about racism that were used to scare the um, the non-immigrant white population into accepting tyranny. Absolutely, because um, if you take, say, let's take cocaine, for instance, um, cocaine was widely used, uh, especially among sort of middle-class white housewives, because it's effective. And, and people nowadays are horrified by this idea. How could you put cocaine in cough syrup? How could you put cocaine in... But there weren't... People weren't getting heavily addicted to it, you know? I mean, yeah, you have people who are going to fall into addictions, but you're going to have that with anything, you know? It, it, you have that with coffee. You know, there are people who are too addicted to coffee. But... You can't use that as a reason to outlaw it. You know, you can't say, here's this safe thing that's been on the market for hundreds of years. We're going to take it off the market because you have to have a reason why. You know, and the reason why is conveniently racism. Yeah, with cocaine specifically, that's a good example because if you could sit down with a bottle of cocaine syrup from, say, you know, 1880 and you compare that in uh, potency 
to the cocaine that was being sold in the black market, say in the 1960s or the 1970s, uh, you you almost have you're almost speaking apples and oranges because the uh, the potency in the 1800s was so low, and there was no need to really refine it out because there was no restrictions on uh, import and export and manufacturing production. There there weren't the kind of uh, restrictions on it, so you could uh, you could water it down with things like you know whiskey or whatever or water, and still sell it. But by the time that it became uh, considered an illicit drug and, you know, the, the government cracks down on it and the black market is created and now you can't afford the luxury of hauling around cocaine in, a, in an elixir that's 70% alcohol. You, you can't afford that luxury. You have to bring it down to a point, potency level that, uh, you know, that we saw in the 60s and 70s. And then when the crackdown happens in the 80s, then what do you do? Well, you you bring the potency level up and the quantity level down so that you're smuggling smaller amounts that are more powerful. And that's where you get, you know, crack cocaine or in those days rock cocaine. And, you, you know, we saw this with meth- methamphetamine. We saw this with cocaine. And we're seeing it with marijuana as well. The marijuana that was commonly used in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was extremely weak. But the marijuana that's being sold today is dramatically more potent uh, because of the this process. The, the black market drives it towards that. And, of course, the government makes the black market. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a great example. You know, crack cocaine. Um, there was no such thing in the 1800s when cocaine was... I mean, I hate to see, say the word legal because there weren't any laws on the books saying it was legal. And this is a problem that I have with a lot of the marijuana prohibition people. They want to make marijuana legal. I don't want marijuana to be legal. I don't want permission from my slave masters to smoke something. I don't want that. I just want to not be abducted and held and and tortured for smoking a plant. I don't need it to be legal. I don't want you to put books on. I don't, I don't want you to tax it. I don't want that. That's not freedom. That's the opposite of freedom. That's begging your masters for per- permission to do something. And I'm not going to do that. I, I think that's uh, what you're bringing up there is a very confusing point for a lot of people because they expect... You know, they, they, I get contacted pretty regularly with people expecting me to fully support some state ballot or whatever that's going to do this or that to make, you know, make marijuana laws softer or bring in medical, medical marijuana. And I understand the intent is to relieve the suffering of very ill people. And, and that's a noble cause. But, uh, but I see a much bigger problem. Uh, and the problem is asking, like you just said, asking your master for permission to do something that's none of the government's business one way or the other. Th- that really burns me. Absolutely. And I, you know, I have that issue across the board. I, I don't care how good the law is. I don't care how well-intentioned the law is. I don't care if the law is going to do actual physical good. I don't care if they want to make a law that says we're going to give a million dollars and a puppy and a unicorn to every sick child. I'm not voting yes for it because it's not free. That money comes from somewhere, those puppies come from somewhere, the unicorns come from somewhere, and if the state is giving it to you, it is stolen, and it is stolen from someone, and it's probably stolen from you. 
<laughs> I know they stole a lot from me this year. They're going to be stealing a whole lot more. We just did our taxes. Did they steal your unicorn? Not Bob! <laughs> we're, we're hiding Bob the unicorn from the tax man. Yay! Oh, now I'm going to have to make free Bob stickers. Man, I have no ability to do that on the trail. Okay, somebody out there, Michael Dean, if you're listening, you make me some free Bob stickers or buttons or something. <laughs> I know you can do it. I'm thinking of the uh, the unicorn, Charlie the unicorn. You know, <laughs> no, Charlie the unicorn. Yes, I know Charlie, Charlie. the unicorn. Oh, Come on. let's go to let's go to. Is it Candy Mountain? It's Candy Mountain. Charlie, Charlie, come to Candy Mountain. Oh. You know, things on the internet just never die. Yeah, that's true. I'm pretty sure no there's somebody. How... I'm pretty sure there's somebody on the internet right now who's just now discovering all your base. Oh my! I hadn't thought about that one in forever. <laughs> all, yeah, all your base or uh, uh, hamster dance or <laughs> uh, pie. What was the pie one? Oh, I like pie. The the no yeah. Bob. I like pie. <sighs> uh, oh my! Someday. You know, that stuff's going to be floating around on the internet forever in archives and so forth. And someday, like a hundred years from now, there's going to be people looking at that going, I don't get this. What were they talking about? And there already is. If you read Shakespeare, you cannot understand what Shakespeare is about. You can't. Because Shakespeare is not high art. It's not. It's not. Like, you know, they teach it, oh, this is mastery of the English language. No, it's not. It is written as jokes and, 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 and crude comments towards the commoners. That's what Shakespeare, Shakespeare wasn't allowed to uh, perform his things for, like, legitimate audiences because they were not legitimate plays, you know? And, and now we have these... You know, you go to any high school, and, and they're trying to teach you uh, Romeo and Juliet like it's high literature. It's not. And if you look at it like high literature, you don't get it. It's not funny. You have to look at it as, you know, like uh, the, uh, an answer to the common people. Uh, there was things like uh, Barbara of Seville and some other things like that that were the same way that were you know, actually banned by some governments because they were, there was so much, um, you know, uh, tongue-in-cheek humor uh, put into it. Mozart used to do that a lot, too, because Mozart would write things for, you know, the, the emperor of Austria or whatever. But then he would go and produce things under pseudonyms for basically, you know... For burlesque. Street. Yeah, for burlesque. And and he had to do it very secretly because if anybody had found out, yeah, he you know he very well could have well anything at, at really. least at least lost his commission with the emperor. Yeah, exactly. If not, been put in jail. Yeah, yeah. The emperors have a surprisingly low level of tolerance for humor. You know, I have found that to be the case for most statists. The yeah, it more is true. statist you are, the less humorous you are, if that makes that sense. That is true. Well, we've, uh, um, we've just about filled a whole 60 minutes here, 
and we only broke once, so we broke the rule of, of uh, um, breaking every 20 minutes and saving the file. But that's okay, because we had a pretty good flow going. So now, tell me about your next leg of your journey on the Appalachian Trail, and um, how far do you plan to get, and what time frame, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. Um, I am just about to cross into the North Carolina, I'm just about to cross the North Carolina-Georgia border into North Carolina, um, and I hope to be up in Tennessee in the next uh, maybe three weeks, four weeks. So that's, that's where we're headed right now. I'm headed towards uh, the Smoky Mountains as fast as my feet will carry me. Well, you take care of yourself and for all the listeners that are listening to us talk. And if anyone wants to donate to badquaker.com in my name for the Appalachian Trail, I would totally let them. <laughs> we could arrange something like that. If somebody wants to make a donation, we could funnel it to you. That would be no problem. And I am, if you're out hiking on the Appalachian Trail, I am wearing uh, kind of a black hat with Bad Quaker buttons. And I'm passing out Bad Quaker. Well, actually, I'm not. I don't have any Bad Quaker uh, business cards because they're heavy. <laughs> <laughs> but I have the button. <laughs> and I'm telling people. Okay, so as we wrap this up, uh, anything else you want to say before we before we break it up? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, folks, thanks for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. And if you got a couple of peanuts you want to throw into a bag and send to Kai on the Appalachian Trail, uh, we can't guarantee the squirrels won't get to them first, but uh, just get over to badquaker.com and hit the donate button. And be sure and put in the notation that it's for Kai, and that's spelled K-I. And thanks a lot for listening today, folks. Thanks, Kai. Thank you.